0: Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing our series AD30, and I've entitled our message a day in the life of your heart. you know. Before I do that, I had a, a, a recent birthday. Uh, 42 is not too old in my opinion. And uh, as I was celebrating my birthday, a friend of mine brought me a game, which I, I just thought I would share with you because it was such an exciting thing. You know, very rarely does something come out of the world that as Christians we're really excited about. You know, we're always dealing with one thing after another, new philosophies, new this, new that, that seemed to be an assault on our faith. And so I thought, man, wouldn't it be great if there's something that really reflects God's kingdom, you know, sort of come to fruition. And out of the world comes this game called Exploding Kittens. And I thought, you know, when God makes all things right, the end times, Exploding Kittens, it just made perfect sense. So anyway, they actually have their own website, For those of you who own cats, just don't even bother to email me. (laughs) A day in the life of your heart, a customs officer observes a truck pulling up at the border. He's suspicious. He orders the driver out, searches the vehicle. He pulls off the panels, bumpers, and wheel cases, but finds not a single scrap of contraband. Whereupon, still suspicious, but at a loss to know where else to search, he waves the driver through. The next week, the same driver arrives. Again, the official searches. Again, finds nothing illegal. Over the years, this official tries full body searches, x rays, sonar, anything he can think of. And each week, the same man pulls up. No mysterious cargo ever appears. And each time, reluctantly, the custom man waves the driver on, and he is always suspicious. Something just doesn't seem right. Finally, after a few years, the customs officer is ready to retire. The driver pulls up, and the customs officer says to him, I know you're a smuggler. Don't bother denying it, but darned if I can figure out what you've been smuggling all these years. I'm retiring. I swear I will not do anything to you, but I've got to know before I retire, will you please tell me what you've been smuggling all these years? The driver says, trucks? (laughs) See, sometimes the obvious is right in front of us. And yet it's so hard for us to see. We have a joke about this at our home. It's called the man look. Now that does feel a little sexist, but it is a term thrown at me quite often. The man look. And the man look is basically when you're asking your spouse for something, and it really should be obvious. You know, you open up the refrigerator, where's the milk? And of course the milk is right in front of you. And you open up the pantry, you know, where are the chips? And of course they're right in front of you. But it's always easier to sort of do ask a Didi sort of thing. And you know, she does ask the pastor with me a lot, so ask a Didi. And so she calls that the man look. The other day, there was a great example. of As I walked out of our bedroom, she was literally sitting at the table three feet from me. I looked right beyond her and I said, Didi, calling to her in the house. She's like, yes, and I mean, she scared me right in front of me. She said, that is the epitome of the man look. See, sometimes the very obvious just escapes us. And there could be compelling evidence right in front of us, but for some reason, we miss it. May 18th, 1980. One of those dates which many of us can remember where we were, what we were doing, that was actually the day that Mount St. Helens erupted. I'm guess. could you feel that here? Okay, because you could feel that for hundreds and hundreds of miles. This writer says, I just started my first year at Washington, Western Washington University, and recall standing outside the Performing Arts Center looking south towards the eerie and colorful red skies emblazoned by the sun's reflection upon tons of airborne volcanic ash. Many students heard the morning explosion over 200 miles away. Well, I guess we're a lot farther than that. My wife heard the blast standing outside her Pulsbo home and thought something large had fallen and crashed in the house. The explosion, like a nuclear bomb, was heard as far away as 600 miles. It killed 57 people. Can you imagine being right next to Mount St. Helens? Standing near, as many did, at the headwaters of the Toutle and Collitz rivers, which in short order flooded with debris from the mountain's blast. A lot of men and women were rescued within a few miles of the mountain, and they testified to the most amazing thing. They didn't hear it. So this happened right next to them. It could be heard 600 miles away. They didn't hear it. Some a mile or two away thought that the darkened sky from the immediate blast was cloud cover and rain. How could that be that you could hear it 600 miles away, but a mile or two away you could not? They are in what's called a zone of silence. Scientists explained that the incredible upward thrust of the exploding mountain sent the sound of the event into the atmosphere where it bounced back to Earth several times, but in intervals outward and away from ground zero. So although people like old Harry Truman were right next to the disaster on Spirit Lake shores in the shadow of the volcano, they wouldn't know the eruption unless they were looking at the mountain in that moment. The sound escaped them. See, we often wonder, I wonder, why Jesus wasn't more popular than he was. I mean, he was popular, but they they did kill him. I mean, it wasn't universal. And he left with really a relatively small following. And he performed miracles. He drew huge crowds. Tens of thousands of people were were following him at times, maybe hundreds of thousands. By the time it was over, though, he left behind a relatively small movement after his death. How did that happen? See, Jesus Jesus was sort of like a a spiritual Mount St. Helens. It, It was a force that was absolutely undeniable, yet often not heard by those right next to him watching what he was doing. And he actually spoke to that issue because he saw it happening. He could read people's hearts. He could read their minds. He would tell them what they were thinking at times. And he spoke to that issue, and he referred to it sort of metaphorically as spiritual deafness. You know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, a heart condition issue that kept people from really seeing what was right in front of them. He spoke to this issue of being spiritually responsive. Lee Eklov shares the true story about a conversation between Max, a first grader, in Lee's congregation, he's a pastor, and Max's dad, Todd. Dad says, Max, why didn't you answer me when I called you? Max, I didn't hear you, Dad. What do you mean you didn't hear me? Max doesn't respond. How many times didn't you hear me, Max? I don't know, three or four. (laughs) See, it is funny, and it's us with God. How many times does God say something in his word, and we see it, we hear it, but we really don't. Matthew 13 is largely about that. I want you to turn there. It's on page 10 and 11 of the New Testament the Bible in front of you. If you grab one of those pew Bibles, the New Testament numbering starts over. So when you get to Matthew, it's 1. So Matthew 13 is on page 10 and 11, about two-thirds of the way through that Bible. Matthew 13. We're going to read a little bit of an extended passage, so it'll be helpful if you're looking at it. If not, stay with me. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Large crowds gathered to him, so he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell by the road, and the birds of the prey came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So he's speaking to two crowds. He's talking to his disciples with a broader crowd of skeptics and others. Whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they don't see, and while hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears, they scarcely hear, and their eyes, or, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they'd see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and didn't see it, to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. He's talking about probably his presence with them. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. The one in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Just going to look at two points and there's a very good chance I'm going to continue this chapter next week and I'll be repeating a little of this because this is the first of seven or eight parables which are all connected together. They were most likely delivered at one point to make a a statement about the nature of God's kingdom. So the first point I want you to look at is God's kingdom is here. It just looks different than you'd expect. So Jesus is delivering some information to his disciples to sort of reset their expectations about what it's going to look like when God comes to earth and brings in sort of the eternal state, the end times, etc. Before we talk about the parable, I want to work through again why the whole chapter, all the series of parables, was given. And that's what we're talking about for just a moment. The Old Testament predicted the future Messiah, Messiah simply means king, the word Christ means king, Messiah, king, Christ, it's all the same thing. That's Jesus' title. It's not his name. His name is Jesus. His title is king, Christ, Messiah. Take your pick. So the Old Testament predicts this future king of Israel, which we know to be Jesus. But in the Old Testament, the prophets never saw the future quite the way we now know it would play out. And of course, the disciples, the apostles, would have had an Old Testament expectation of Jesus. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the apostles. They had the Old Testament. So they would have seen things through the eyes of the prophets. So in the Old Testament, it saw Messiah, or Jesus, bringing in the kingdom of God. Bringing in the end times. That's what they saw. In fact, I, I love this illustration. I know I've shared it with you before, but there's just not a better way of explaining this. When you look west from Calgary, when you're looking west, you know there's a series of mountains and mountain ranges there. But what do you see? You only see the first one, right? You see the mountains, but by that you mean you know, the mountains near Canmore, Banff, or whatever, the first series, or, or the Foothills, or, you know, canadascas That's what you see. You don't see Lake Louise. You don't see Emerald Lake. You don't see any of that. You see the first range. And that's like the prophets in the Old Testament. When they looked towards the Messiah... They talked about how Jesus would come into this world. He would make all things right. He would rule the nations. Israel would be elevated on the world stage. All those things are going to happen. They saw it all as one giant range. What they couldn't do is get between those mountains in the valleys of future history and see how it would play out. We live in one of those valleys right now between Jesus' first coming and his next coming. In fact, this was very confusing to the disciples, even after this this story, uh, this series of stories, series of parables, and even after Jesus died and rose again. When you get to Acts chapter one, do you know what the primary thing on the apostles' minds is? See, I don't think Jesus is going anywhere. They lost him for a couple of days. He's dead. Now we got him out of the grave. We've kind of brushed him off a little. He's looking good. His wounds have healed. He's a quick healer, that Jesus. Got to give him that. Quick healer. Some of you are thinking that's sacrilegious. I don't know. I don't think so. But Jesus, after three days, he's out of the grave. He's looking good. And then what are the disciples thinking? They're not thinking he's going anywhere now. They're thinking he's here to stay. And their question in Acts 1-6 is this. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What that means is their expectation was, even after everything he said, that Israel is going to have a king, it's going to be Jesus, they're going to be elevated on the world stage, they're going to have a military again, they're going to be number one, they're going to be a superpower, Israel, again, just like under the days of David and Solomon. That's what they're thinking. Because their expectations of the kingdom of God our Old Testament prophet expectations. They don't see the differences between the first set of mountains and the second, the third, and the fourth as we go through salvation history. They never saw the church era that we are living in. But Jesus was going to be gone in like 40 days. Or just a few days, I'm sorry. Just a few days. And the new truth is that the kingdom, which was supposed to come in apocalyptic power... Like, think Book of Revelation stuff, with Messiah ruling the earth, wrapping up world history. That has arrived now in a different form, because the king is here, Jesus is here, but we're not going to see the apocalyptic stuff yet. So this era that they were going to live in was sort of a mystery, and that's what Jesus calls it the mysteries of the kingdom and in this series of parables he sort of defines the nature of this era they would be living in before things really come to a close and Jesus uses parables which his disciples give him a slight critique on you know why are you talking to us in stories just tell us what you're thinking a parable is sort of a proverb or a saying or an illustrative comparison or a story. Most of them that we see are sort of extended similes or metaphors, and Matthew 13 is full of these extended similes. The kingdom of heaven is like. So Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. It just looks different than you'd expect. Again, when you've got the king of the earth, Messiah, coming, you're expecting the end of the age. Big stuff happening in the sky the end of time, history wrapped up. Jesus is saying, no, it's going to look different than that. With that in mind, God's kingdom moves forward wherever and whenever human hearts are receptive to God's word. Jesus was speaking to both his disciples and to larger crowds. It's possible that when he gave this parable, he was watching what he was talking about. It's possible he's looking at a mature grain field and and he's speaking about the process. But he's probably looking at something like what he's describing. There were two ways to sow seed back then if you were a farmer. First, the field would be broken up with a crude plow, maybe behind a, a pair of oxen or behind a donkey, and then a donkey with a sack of grain on each side would, would walk through that field, and you would just cut a little hole in that grain sack. So as the donkey walks and sort of bounces through that field, the grain would sort of fall. That was one way you can do it. I don't know how common that was. It might have been common in bigger fields. But normally a farmer would either do that or he'd simply take a bag of grain and maybe have it wrapped over his shoulder somehow, tied to him, and he'd take his hand and and he or she would throw that grain into a slight wind and it would then evenly spread out on the ground. I imagine that's the image that most people saw in their minds as Jesus told this parable. So a farmer is out in the field casting seed. Maybe he's out there with his family. They're all doing it across a freshly broken field on rough terrain. Don't imagine a field like southern Alberta or Saskatchewan with, within a few meters of, of any field. In the same field, the grain would hit four different kinds of soil in the same field in a short period of time now there were there were paths these wouldn't have been giant fields typically there were there were paths separating family plots small family farms that went back for generations and so these paths sort of were property separators or it might one well, you might have one down the middle of your field that you owned and and these were just beaten down paths because they had been walked on and had oxen and, and, and donkeys or mules walk on them for hundreds and hundreds of years so they were virtually impenetrable. It was dirt, but it might as well have been a sidewalk. Plow would get to that area, it would skip up and it couldn't bite into it. But when seed was sown and thrown into the air, the seed would hit some on that path. And there, it had no chance to germinate. There was no future for it. It was never even covered with dirt. So birds would come and they would eat this seed. And within just a couple of meters of that, you would have a very deceptive part of the field Because that part of the field appeared to be very rich and and fertile, and it it was fertilized. Probably sheep manure, other things were laid on the field, so it looked fertilized, it looked fertile, it had incredible potential. But just a short distance from the surface, maybe six inches, maybe a foot and a half, was a, a limestone rock shelf. So Jesus refers to this as rocky soil, but it's not the kind of rocky soil if you ever were out on a farm as a kid, and I was at my Uncle Lloyd's farm picking up rocks in a field, what you would find in, in those fields would be, you know, big river rock, and you would pick those up on a sled and you'd get to the end of the field, you'd dump them in the fence row. That's not what's going on in the Middle East. There you would have like a large limestone shelves and they're completely hidden by nice soil on top of them. Jesus called it rocky, not because it's full of rocks, but it's over rock. And it was very deceptive because seed would hit the soil and and it would sprout and it would grow quickly and it had all the signs of a future. But the shallow soil was quickly baked by the sun. And when the sun came out and it got hot, any amount of moisture that had settled on that flat limestone underneath the soil was quickly evaporated. And those plants were baked. And they died. Within a short distance of that was another type of ground. In a world without chemicals, thorns, were not uprooted. thorns that, that weren't uprooted and burned would last for generations. So if you have a thorny part of your field and it keeps dropping seeds and, and the roots remain there, It will look really promising after plowing. You don't see any evidence that they're there. But once the field is planted and there's some rain, a little nitrogen hits that, the good seeds grow. They grow well for a while because the thorns and the thistles grow right up with them. And those good plants stand no chance. They're alive. They're never going to be fruitful. They're alive, but they're choked, and they're never going to bear fruit. Then there's good soil. Rich, fertile, deep. And seed landing there was destined to flourish and bear fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30, Jesus said. And Jesus said that the soil represents the human heart. And, And four different kinds of heart, actually. Four different kinds of hearts, if you will. And the seed is the word of God. So this whole illustration is what's it like when the word of God hits various kinds of hearts, how do we respond to it? Now, in the scripture, the heart is more than our feelings. When when you think of the word heart, and uh, there's even that rock song, you know, listen to your heart. I don't know what it's called, but you know, you know this tune. I, I I won't sing it. Listen to your heart. No, all right. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's obviously saying that our cultural view of the heart is, is our feelings, sort of the seat of our, our feelings and our emotions. But That's not what a biblical heart is. To define a biblical heart, you sort of have to include a lot of things. Like, even your mind is a part of your heart, and your will, your decision making capacity, and your emotions. So, your heart is basically you. It's sort of your center. It's what you think and what you do, it's what you feel and what you do. The word is quite elastic. It's you, it's your personality, it's your decisions, it's your thinking, it's your morals, it's your values. There are four kinds of hearts that Jesus describes. First, the impenetrable heart. That's what he's talking about as he relates to that seed that hits that path that's been sort of carved out over generations. It's become almost like a sidewalk. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, verse 19, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Sometimes a human heart, sometimes your heart, sometimes my heart is like a hard path. I mean, we'd like to think because we're Christ followers that the word of God is always really well received. But sometimes God's word isn't well received. It's heard, but it's not welcomed and embraced and understood and put into practice. And Jesus says when that happens, it's like Satan, like those birds, quickly taking it away. Now, Jesus is using language very loosely here because... And, and I'm not criticizing Jesus. I know who he is and I know who I am. But he is using language very loosely because what he means here, what he's saying is that Satan comes and does this. Well, we know Satan can only be in one place at one time. So when this happens, it's not Satan personally going to every person and doing this because the reality is Satan can only be one place at one time. He's not God. But the Bible describes Satan as over in his realm of influence all of the philosophical, religious, worldly realms of thought that cause the inhospitability to Jesus in this world. That's sort of the realm of Satan, if you will. So whether Satan's doing it personally or not, his realm of influence is doing this in our hearts. When our hearts are dismissive, we hear something from God and our hearts are immediately dismissive. It's like the word of God hitting that hard path. Because Sometimes, and this can happen to us too, we sort of buy into the prevailing thinking in the world around us. I mean, it's so influential. And every generation has to fight this because with every generation, there's a few new things that come along and they assault our faith. And and we sort of buy into it because, hey, it, it seems to be what everyone else is thinking. And when we do that, and then the word of God hits us, it's like Jesus' ideas are flat earth. You know what I'm saying? Jesus really can get out of date pretty quickly with every generation because of this. And and we're thinking, come on, Jesus, you gotta catch up, you gotta stay current. But he's not going to. He's God, he doesn't change. But many times as the world continues to evolve and philosophical systems keep moving forward, Jesus becomes less and less sort of in touch with where modernity is and we become dismissive and we hear the word of God, it's like hits the hard path and we're just not interested because Jesus doesn't really fit in anymore. The second kind of soil is the impressionable heart. Probably a couple of different ways to say this. I've said impressionable, like Jesus makes a good first impression doesn't last. Verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Sometimes a heart is like that rocky soil. Again, I don't like the term rocky soil, but don't want to critique the one who said this because that could get me in trouble. But there's this shelf of rock underneath It's not like rocks in the soil, but a shelf of rock. So God's Word gets a great start. It takes some root. Change might even begin a little. You know, you might hear a sermon, or you might be watching a podcast. You might be in some sort of a Bible study. and, And there's enough of an impression made there that decisions are made. You might be a person investigating Jesus, and it sounds good for a while. And so it gets to the point in your heart that maybe some decisions are being made. Maybe you're setting some goals in your life. And Maybe a new habit even starts that relates to God and his kingdom. But, but I would sort of define it as a little bit of a Jesus crush. You know? He's kind of getting to know him for the first time. You're a little infatuated with what's going on. You know, it seems like a good movement. He seems like a cool guy. But then the hard times come. Something doesn't work out. God disappoints you, and your heart runs back home to self. Jesus is too much effort. He's sort of in a momentary infatuation. and For a moment, he looks like the easy path and the good deal, but he's not. He didn't promise that. It doesn't take long as a Jesus follower to, to find that out. Eventually, you're going to be disappointed. And that's like this impressionable heart. You get a good start. It doesn't last. Then there's the crowded heart, verse 22. And I think this is probably what most of us struggle with the most, if we are Christ followers. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This is sort of us when we, we sort of let the world crowd into our value system. Sometimes a heart is like that, thorny soil. There's a place for God's word. There's a place for God. The problem is God isn't alone. He's going to share us with everything else. He's going to share us with the thorns and the thistles around us. There's a lot of competition. And in our minds, we can sort of make Jesus work. You know, he maybe get, you know, he's got this part of me, but I also want to fit into the world around me. That's sort of this thorny heart. It's probably our greatest challenge. We tend to take on our surroundings. It's very natural an English tourist attraction had to scramble after one of their exhibits, was temporarily less than family-friendly. Officials at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park were forced to remove five newly adopted parrots after the birds were discovered swearing at park guests. (laughs) I'm so glad this happened to the British because they always appear so much smarter than us and everything. You know, you have a British accent, you get 10 extra IQ points. But they can't control their parrots. They were unsure how it happened, but after the five parrots had been quarantined together, they came out with quite the blue vocabulary. Apparently, the park staff found it amusing at first, but that only encouraged the parrots to say more obscenities. Park CEO Steve Nichols explained the dynamic. For the last 25 years, we've always taken in parrots that have sometimes had a bit of blue language, and we've really got used to that. But just by coincidence, we took in five in the same week, and because they were all quarantined together, it meant that one room was just full of swearing birds. The more they swear, the more you usually laugh, which then triggers them to swear again. But when you get four or five together that have learned the swearing and the laughing, so when one swears, one laughs, before you know it, it just got to be like an old working men's club scenario where they're all just swearing and laughing. We are parrots, all. Not with the swearing and the laughing, but with really having a hard time resisting what we constantly come in contact with. How hard it is to be young today. How hard it is to be young today. And to grow up in a world that is increasingly so hostile to faith and so hostile to the idea of one way and so hostile to a Jesus that might not fit in philosophically with contemporary culture. So hostile to just saying, you know what? I'm going to live my life by this. Let the chips fall where they may. I'm not going to try to fit this into the world around me. I'm going to live my life by this. God's word. Because we're parrots, and we just naturally take on what goes on around us. In 2012, there was an article in the New York Magazine which told the story about a trio of researchers who were trying to solve a sociological issue, uh, a sociological mystery in Brazil. Over the course of 40 years, before that article was written, so going back to about the early 70s, Brazil had experienced one of the largest drops in average family size in the world. Brazilians used to have 6.3 children per woman in 1960. That's a lot of kids per woman. I have a new respect for Brazilian women. 6.3 children per woman in 1960 to 2.3 children in 2000. Now think about that. That's a massive cultural issue which affects all kinds of societal issues workforce, all kinds of things. What made the drop so curious is that the Brazilian government never tried to limit family size. You know, this is before the world was saying we have too many people, it was before the UN got involved in that, before people talked about that, it was before a lot of abortion took place in the world. So this is early. Why did this happen? In fact, at some point it was actually illegal to advertise contraceptives, so that wasn't it either. What could explain such a steep drop? The researchers zeroed in on one factor. was TV. In the mid-1960s, TV spread throughout Brazil. But it didn't arrive everywhere at once in the country. Brazil's main station, Globo, expanded slowly and unevenly throughout the country. The researchers found that areas that had gained access to Globo saw larger drops in fertility than those that didn't. But it wasn't news or educational shows that caused the fertility drop. It was viewers' exposure to popular soap operas, or novellas, I believe is the way you'd say that, that most Brazilians watch every night. The researchers also found that areas with exposure to TV were dramatically more likely to give their children names shared by novella characters. Novellas almost always center around four or five families, each of which was usually small. Now, the reason the the families were small on these sitcoms It's not because Brazil was trying to say have fewer kids. It's because you just can't get big families on a screen and film them. So they limited the number of characters so the audience could track with fewer people, thus small families on TV as the movie stars. Nearly three-quarters of the main female characters of childbearing age in the primetime novellas had no children, and a fifth had one child. The researchers concluded that exposure to this glamorized and unusual by their standards, family arrangement, led to significantly lower fertility. Think about that. They watched TV, there wasn't necessarily even an agenda in the media at that time. And people tried to mimic or parrot what they saw. The author of the article in New York Magazine called the impact of TV in Brazil an example of Now, he obviously believes there was something going on here. The propaganda campaign of a tiny, disproportionately influential cultural elite. Now, I I don't know if that's a little early to say that about what was going on back then. That may or may not be fair. But I would say it today that a lot of people in charge of a lot of institutions probably do have agendas that are antithetical to our faith. I don't think it takes a conspiracy theorist to say Hollywood and Christianity aren't a great match and mix. We're parrots. It is so hard to swim anything other than upstream with the prevailing worldview with all the other fish in the world. And finally, the fruitful heart. Sometimes a heart is like good soil. God's word takes root. We're changed. We bear God's standards, his values, his ethics, and when it's over, we quickly look like Jesus and his kingdom I want to close with three quick thoughts first we're all a combination of the four hearts see I know where you want to go as soon as you hear this I know what you do because I do it too you want to say oh you know Jesus is talking about three groups of people who aren't believers and then the last ones that's us because we're good soil and it's not what Jesus is saying I could make a really good argument that all of us are all for these soils in different areas of our lives. I could make a really good argument. In some areas, you've heard the word of God and you've become mature and it didn't take much prodding from the Holy Spirit to get you there. In other areas, you are Britney Spears. Oops, did it again. Oops, did it again. Oops, and you just don't change. And sometimes your heart isn't ready to change. We want to identify with good soil, but I guarantee you there are parts of me that are good soil. There are parts of me that are still somewhat dismissive to Jesus, resistant to change. There are parts of me that want to fit into this world too. We all display these four kinds of soils in our lives. The challenge is to get to good soil in all areas. Second, God rewards receptivity with more responsibility. Now, this isn't in Jesus' parable, but it's in the section where he talks about parables. And and he talks about, it's a very interesting statement. Whoever has, to him more will be given And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Reminds me of the parable of the talents. You know, Jesus gives a certain amount of, uh, he entrusts people with certain gifts or or responsibilities in the kingdom. And those who really invest in the kingdom make a difference. He gave them more. And those who didn't and just decided to do nothing, he took it away. There's this principle in the scripture. It's kind of like the free refill principle at restaurants. About 30 years ago, or 20 years ago, when they started giving refills at restaurants, I thought the kingdom of heaven had come. Because I love Pepsi. It's God's drink. And so, you know, so the ideal is, you know, Lambeau Field, Green Bay Packers with a Pepsi. You're like in heaven. So I love Pepsi, and, and it's probably the last 20 pounds of my body weight, but the reality is when you, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you drink down your pop, you ask for a refill, and they give you one, but they only give you one when you use what you've already been given. You gotta drink it down, and it's just good stewardship to get two or three Pepsis out of that, isn't it? I mean, you're paying for it. That's the way God is with this, with kingdom responsibility and kingdom knowledge. He says when you use what you have, God gives you more. God rewards receptivity with more responsibility. When we resist God and we hold him back in our lives, we limit what God can do with us. And finally, don't underestimate the value of your life's obedience. Now isn't this interesting? that the apostles had this view of the kingdom. It's going to be like the end times, and it's going to be like fireworks in the sky, and and there's going to be judgment on the earth, and all kinds of crazy stuff's going to happen, and you can read about it in books like Daniel and Revelation. That's what they all expected when Jesus came. Stuff like that would happen. And Jesus says, you know what? The kingdom's going to be a little more of a mystery for a while. I want to reframe it for you, and I'm going to talk about that more next week as well. I'm going to reframe it for you, and the first thing he talks about is the kingdom of heaven is moving forward. When we just let God's word change us. Well, that's not like fireworks and end of time kind of stuff. That doesn't make for a good movie about the apocalypse. No, it doesn't. But what it does do is elevate the importance of you in your life, just simply living for God day by day. Don't wait for the rapture as part of the kingdom of God or the second coming or the final judgment or the apocalypse, the remaking of the planet as God promises. Your obedience, your simple obedience is God's kingdom moving forward. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that in each one of our lives, in each one of our hearts, that we would determine today in some area where maybe we've been a little bit hard-hearted or maybe you know your word has penetrated, it started to grow and we decided it wasn't worth it or we're being a little worldly, those first three hearts that we don't want to think we are, in some area I'm sure each of us struggles and I pray that in each of our lives we would want to move more towards being good soil all the time so that when we hear and know what's right, we would just do it because we serve you. You're our God, and we love you. Help us, Lord, and thank you for the fact that one of the most important things we can do in light of your kingdom coming is simply to display on display in our lives obedience to the one who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.